Good morning. Good morning. I have anticipated being in this passage with you this morning, so I am excited. Um, understanding that these letters were never written with chapter breaks, that where we left off last week really leads right into this week. And so last week we looked at, and Lynn led us well into the thought that we are always in trouble when we humanly are, have our finite perspectives begin to interfere with God's infinite promises. Paul's going to use some really colorful language today. He's going to use some really choice words this morning, and those words are intentional. They're important. And there's two words that I, I want to highlight and they are stand and fall. Stand and fall are opposites. They are a dichotomy, and they create today our title. The title is Stand Firm, Don't Fall. When I was studying and I was thinking about this picture, I couldn't help but go back to the point in Matthew 14 where Jesus has fed the 5,000. He sends the disciples out into the Sea of Galilee upon a boat. He sends the crowd away, and he himself goes up to be with the Father by himself for the next 12 hours. As the disciples are blown off the shorelines deep into the middle of the sea in, a, in the darkest of night in a hurricane fighting for their lives, they have one person in the boat with them who is the best chance at survival for them, and that is Peter. Peter was called from these very shores to follow Jesus as a disciple. It was later in that night after 12 hours, after they're fighting for their lives, strained and weary, they saw what they thought was a ghost coming to them on the water, walking on the water, and they were afraid. They were terrified. After fighting for your life, I think we would be as well. But John says, I think that's the Lord. And so Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. Jesus says, come. And immediately Peter jumps over the side of the boat and begins to walk upon the liquid as if it's firm ground, as if it's solid ground. He's standing in the waves with Jesus, standing firm on water, and he takes a few steps towards Jesus. In the power and grace and presence of Jesus, he is doing the impossible. With Jesus, how many of you know the, the impossible always becomes possible? Amen? So the possible made possible by Jesus, he is standing firm in those waves. It is only when he glances away from Jesus for a moment to put his eyes back on the circumstances around him, his waves overshadowing him, the very thing that led him to fear also led him to fall. He started to think about all he had strained, and he began to sink. And so Jesus comes to him, grabs him. We know the famous line, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? He carries him back into the boat. They get in the boat. He calms the waves. The waves obey. It says they worshiped him there because even the waves obey Jesus. Truth is, when you are dealing with that kind of power, let me say this statement again. When you're dealing with that kind of power, the power of the Creator, when we allow our human or finite perspectives to begin to interfere with God's infinite promises, we are always going to be in trouble, right? Amen. So today, we're going to take where Lynn left us last week at the end of chapter 4, and we're going to step right into chapter 5, and we're going to see these words jump off the page, stand and fall. Here it is, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Here's that word, stand firm. Then and do not let yourselves again be burdened by the yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that you, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to you, every man who lets himself be circumcised 
that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Now, let me pause for a second after this verse. Let me explain what's going on. He said that word stand, and he says, do not get into the temptation of going back to the yoke of slavery. What, what Paul's pointing to here is he's looking at Genesis 17, and he's, he's going back to what we looked at last week, where we know that God gave a promise, and he gave a son, and that son was Isaac, and that was the blessing that was going to be upon his people Israel. It was through Abraham that we'd be blessed. And there was a sign of that covenant, and that was circumcision. It was a symbol. It was a symbol of that promise of a heart given to God, one that was dedicated, that would follow him even unto the wide unknown. Paul knew that if you uh, were to follow God, it required lawfully, being an expert in law, that you require him with your whole heart. Deuteronomy 30 said that you give him your all. Jeremiah 4 said everything. Paul wrote in Romans 2.29 that circumcision was only a symbol only a symbol of one who has given their life to Christ. So he said, what is important for salvation is circumcision of the heart, a heart change. Something must be completely repentant. We must come to the point where we, instead of living for ourselves, begin to live for him and in him worship in all that we do. And so that was always the intention. And so Paul is saying that for anyone who's coming in and trying to tell you that you need to be circumcised, it's of no value. If you're going to be circumcised, make sure you keep the whole law because the, what was required, the greatest command in Deuteronomy 6 and repeated by Jesus to the, in the Gospels to the Pharisees was that you are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with your entirety. So that word whole there is intentional. He says, stand firm, holy in Jesus. It's only by him is death become life. It is not by man's practices. It's not even by man's symbols. They are empty apart from a wholehearted commitment to Jesus. Moving on. Verse 4. It says, You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. There's that word fall. This is important. We're going to hold on to that. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by the faith of righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision have any value. The only thing that counts is a faith expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? The kind of doctrine or persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast, and let me explain least, this represents sin or untrue doctrine, works through the whole batch, ruining it. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, I'm, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? If that was true, then why are people trying to take my life for following Christ? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Now... <laughs> There's a lot of creative language in this passage. When, whenever you get up and you go, hey, we're going to read 12 verses and you're going to read the word circumcision and castration through it, you know that we've got a little bit of a challenging passage. Amen? But I think what Paul's trying to say here is really pointed and he is only using these words to make his point. There's a term here, a specific term, that when I was in seminary, was widely debated, those who are of the doctrine or the theology that one might be able to lose their salvation would always point to this verse. And if you are of that thought or you've ever been um, encouraged to think that way, let's just let the Bible teach itself, and I think that we're going to put that concern to bed. 
The word is you have fallen away from grace. It is given here to distinguish two different people. It's to distinguish the saved from the lost. When Paul writes this letter, he's writing to one crowd, and that crowd is allowing the letter uh, of Galatians, or the letter to the Galatians, to circulate through the churches in the Galatian region. But that crowd, or that church, is comprised of two different groups. There's the Judaizer, who's the one that he's talking about, the agitator here, and then there's the Gentile Christian, those who had converted unto Jesus and moved from death to life. They were genuinely saved. So, who he's writing to here, we can identify with because this is still the kind of person that God sees when he looks at the world. There's lost and saved. For him, there's only children of God, his children, or children of wrath. There is no other distinction. There's a big statement in verse 1 that I want to go back and read. In verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, so stand firm and then do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. As he's moving through this, I want to talk about that first group that he's pointing to, again, the agitator, the Judaizer, or the lost. I want to use a term to describe them. These are the attracted to Christ. These are attracted to Christ. They are a false follower. They have never attached to Jesus through salvific faith. They're unattached. So when Paul's applying this term, falling away from grace, to an unbeliever, It is to truly expose the lack of genuine faith in that person for Jesus, that they are not truly saved. You see, in Jesus' ministry throughout his entirety through the Gospels and even in the early church, there were always people that were amongst the crowd. There was always a crowd that would form because people loved the message of Jesus. He was teaching something that was different than what they'd taught before. And his message was accompanied for authenticity with miracles. And those miraculous moves, that power, attracted people and they loved to see what he could do. Even in the early church, that, that power extended to the, apostol- the apostles the, and during the apostolic age. They didn't have the full counsel of the Scripture yet. We didn't have the New Testament yet. And so what happened, without the full revelation of God, they, they, like Jesus, had the ability to perform miracles to authenticate their message of the gospel, that in Jesus alone there is life. And that's it. But what he is highlighting here is that there are people that were attracted to him but never truly identified with him, never truly uh, attached to him. And the Judaizer falls into this category. They would claim Jesus, and I'm stressing the word claim. They would claim Jesus, but they had never truly trusted Jesus. They claimed Jesus, but they trusted in their own works. They trusted in their own upbringing. They trusted in their religious practice of the law, and now they were imposing it on those who were truly believers, confusing them. They would even slip in. The Bible says that there is one in four responses to the gospel. That the road to destruction is wide, but the road unto righteousness is narrow and few find it. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 13 as he gave us the parable of the sower. Billy Graham was famous for saying that half the church of Jesus will die and go to hell. And that's scary to note, but he said, because amongst you, there's not just wheat, there are tares, there are weeds as well. And these these individuals had experienced the power of God. They mixed in with the the church. They had become, become a part of his people. They saw and were exposed firsthand to the truth and blessing of Jesus. They were exposed firsthand to the grace and the move and the power of Jesus in people's lives, true believers. They became enlightened 
and they got experience through the taste that they had of the gospel. But then they decided that the world was better. They decided their way was better. It's kind of like Peter standing in the waves there with Jesus, able to do the impossible, but then turning his eyes to the waves, thinking on what he could do and what he couldn't. They refused to stand fully with Christ like Peter in the waves, placing their face solely in him to be truly free. They were curious, they were enamored, but they were never truly trusting of Jesus. So they fell away from the doorway of grace. When it was provided to them, they fell back into placing their trust in themselves. Can I encourage you? What Paul's trying to say here is this. It doesn't matter if you've been in church your whole life. There is no salvation by association. There is no salvation by association. You can claim Christ, but if you place your faith in your own works, just like the Judaizer here, he says you're lost. They claimed Christ, but they straddled the fence. They straddled a fence, and that straddling led to their own lostness, their own unattachedness to God. When it comes to Jesus, uh, what Paul was trying to say with the word whole is there is no taking portions of him that you want and then not taking the portions you don't like. With Jesus, it is you have to swallow the entire pill. It is about ingesting him entirely. There is no picking and choosing. Amen? And how many of you have experienced with Jesus enough that you wish there was some picking and choosing involved? I want the blessing. I just don't want the persecution. Right? It can be hard. It can be difficult. But he said, out here with me in the midst of this storm, whether it be water or drought, fire, I am with you. And you can do the impossible by my power by my presence, if you'll just stand firmly, stand holy in my grace. Salvation came by relation to Jesus alone. This is what we are called to stand in. Attaching and abiding in Jesus, not simply being attracted to him. In John 6, Jesus pointed to this and he kind of gave even more distinction to the difference between the crowd that he was talking about. Now, in John 6 is another recount. It's John's recount of where Jesus fed the 5,000, walked on water, and then it says he got into the boat and he went to the other side. And when he got to the next shore in Capernaum, there was a crowd waiting for him. This was the same people, many of them, who had, he had just fed with bread and fish, many resources. And they show up and they want breakfast. And they're waiting on him to give it to them. And so he says to them, you have come that I would fill you, but you've not come by faith. He says in verse 26 of 6, he says, Very truly, I say to you, you were looking for me not because you saw signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. This next verse will be on the screen. It's important. And they asked him, they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus' response. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's it. What did he require? Trust. What did he require? Come out here with me in the waves. Come out here and trust me. What, did he, what, what was their question? What must we do? What works can we do? How many of you, that is good news, that there's no work for you to do? Amen? 
How many of you, it's good work, that it's good word, and it's good news that you have no work in you that you can do. It is solely upon his performance, not yours. Going on, he tells them about the bread that he can offer as eternal life. And in verse 35 of chapter 6 in John, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. Verse 36 on the screen, but as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. This is what he's talking about. He's saying, hey, you've seen me. You were attracted to me. You liked all the show. You wanted to claim my name, but you're unwilling to trust me. Verse 37, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. How many of you, that's good news? When Jesus gives the invitation for us to come to him, just like he gave to Peter to jump over the side of the boat, and when we come to him, he says, I will never drive you away if you'll just come in faith, truly. So he goes on, and he's explaining through John 6, and this is a really important passage. He continues to explain what the call and the cost of discipleship will mean. And so he actually says in this passage, he says, you have to ingest me. You have to eat the entire pill. You can't just take what you want. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part of me. And they saw that and they realized <laughs> that's a weird saying. And they said, this is a really hard teaching. How can we accept this? What, what can we do? And so Jesus looks at them in John 6 aware that many of them right here are about to walk away from him. How heartbreaking is this? That he came for them, they were created in his image, and they're going to turn. He says, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what, what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some among you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you, no one can come unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. I love that point. The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. How many of you, this is good news, that salvation doesn't require perfection? but it does require an entire life commitment. This goes beyond being attracted. This goes to the person of Jesus and his power and wholly clinging to him. What happened as he sat on the shore and he gave this away, they left him in droves at that moment because they, they wanted the show, they wanted what he could do, but they were unwilling to trust him completely. They'd been taught all their lives that their works was their means. And Paul's reminding the Galatians here, just like Jesus said in this gospel, it's not by your works. That is no means. That's not the answer. That'll never be the answer. How many of you are grateful that you cannot outperform the cross? Your performance is never going to earn you heaven. How many of you are grateful that you cannot outperform the cross? Once Jesus entered the picture, he fulfilled the law. So Jesus says to the that these confused Gentiles, circumcision, no circumcision, castration, it doesn't matter. None of it means anything in terms of your salvation. These are symbols, just like this is a symbol. Baptism is a symbol of a heart that has been regenerated, a heart that is completely devoted to God. If these 
students that we got to see celebrate today through the symbol of baptism had given their life to Christ, but unfortunately never made it to these waters to show us outwardly what God had done inwardly. Would they go to heaven if they had given their life and placed their faith solely in Jesus, but somehow tragically died before they were able to come here and show us this? Do we believe that they would still go to heaven? Or would God go, nope, sorry, you didn't get to get into the water, so you're not welcome here? No. He's pointing to this. He's pointing to the circumcision. Those are just symbols. They mean nothing apart from a heart devoted to Jesus. And so he turns to the truly saved in this crowd, in the audience. Those who, those who had given their life to Christ, placed their trust in him, come out on the ways with him, and now they're being told that they have to do something. They had never done anything to earn salvation to this point, but now they're being told they have to do something. And he goes, listen, do not fall away from grace. Same word, different meaning. And here's what it means for them, the saved, the truly attached to Jesus, the, the Gentile Christian, those abiding in Christ, attached by salvific faith because they trust him and him alone. When applied to the believer, this principle from falling from grace has to do with a person who genuinely trusts in Christ for salvation, but then outwardly reverts to a life of living under external rituals living under rules where they carry those out in their own strength, where they perform. <laughs> this is like Peter, who has just done the impossible. He stepped over the side of the boat, standing on liquid as if it's solid ground and turning his eyes to the waves. How many of you, how many of you fault Peter for turning his eyes to the waves? I mean, he'd been fighting a hurricane for 12 hours. How many of you go, I can't believe I'm out here doing this and turned his eyes to the waves? How many of you think you might have done the same thing for a moment? Just a little bit. Just hands raised, just a little bit. I don't fault him for that. But this is what he's saying. If you would just stay here with me in this moment, not allow yourself to be confused, not allow your status of me to be confused because you think it's dependent upon your own performance. It's never dependent upon your own performance. How many of you have a tendency to struggle with perfectionism in here? This is where the weight comes off for us a little bit today. Let me say the statement I said a moment ago. You can never outperform the cross. Do you feel the freedom in that? That statement right there. You can never outdo what Jesus did for you on your behalf. There is joy in that. There is freedom in that. There is rest in that. Because you no longer have to do it. Paul's reminding us that there is freedom to enjoy God Doing the impossible through your life, making it possible. Taking your dead life and making it alive. Taking you out into the waves in the middle of a hurricane and allowing you to stand by the power and in his grace. Even though circumstantially, it makes no sense. How many of you have ever seen God in your, in your life keep you upright when that made absolutely no sense? I've had so many people tell me through different stories through the years, that I should be dead already. Let me ask you this. How many of you have that, you've ever said that or thought that in your life? I should already be gone. Can I ask you what you're doing with your life then? Because you're not, and God intentionally has left you here for ministry's sake. 
The question I have for you is this. Are you standing in the power and the promises of Jesus? Are you enjoying God this morning? It's really hard to enjoy God when your faith is put in your own performance. It's really difficult to enjoy God when you're not standing out here trusting in His power, but you're depending on your own and your own religious works. So Paul's trying to tell us that you have to stand firmly in what he does. The Westminster Confession is simple. It says this, the chief end of man, his whole purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him not for a minute, but forever. Not to be attracted in a moment, but to enjoy God forever. Enjoy the fruit of his labor, not your own. You don't have to do anything. So Paul's saying our purpose is not to be crippled in shackles or falling into waves. It's to be standing upright in freedom, even if circumstances seem daunting. Amen? So here's the question I have for you to consider. This is for the saved and they know it. Okay, Just like Paul's talking to the saved in, in the Gentile church of Galatia right here. You know God and you know he knows you. Christian today, believer, are you enjoying God this morning? I mean, like, are you truly enjoying Jesus and the freedom that you have in him? Because freedom isn't placing our stock in symbols, like circumcision. And it isn't placing our stock in what we can do. If we couldn't save ourselves to begin with, we would have never needed Jesus. So it's not about what we can do. All of that is meaningless for salvation. Freedom isn't about solely placing stock in miraculous signs. Can I just encourage you? Sorcerers had been around for centuries by the time Jesus showed up. Jesus goes on in Matthew 16 and he says, a wicked and adulterous uh, generation demands a sign. So I don't, I don't think that Jesus performed any miracle in his ministry that was more powerful than the cross. It was the most important moment in all of history. And so when he takes you from death to life, just because you place your faith in his work on the cross for you, he has performed the most important miracle that he could ever do for you. What else does he need to do? I've asked myself this question all week. What else would he have to do? He's already saved me. What else do I demand of him? Freedom is placing our stock and standing in completely the Son of God. What Paul's fighting for here isn't that these people would lose their salvation. That's impossible. I'm going to, I said it again. Whoever he brings to me, I will never cast away. There's nothing you can do, evil or good, will ever rip you from the hand of God or ever force him to turn his back on you. So this is not an argument for someone who would lose their salvation. What he's saying is when you, Christian, fall away from grace, you're falling away from the joy of your salvation, you're falling away not from salvation. You're falling away from the joy of salvation. And you're also falling away from the ministry that God has for you. You're falling away from the opportunity to share this gift with others. Can I ask you, how many people in your life want to follow, who are lost, by the way, how many people do you know who are lost want to follow a Christian who is lifeless and joyless? How many of you want to buy into your Savior when it means literally no change in your life. Now, to follow Jesus entirely does mean cost, but it also means fulfillment. It means joy. It means, it means being sustained even in the middle of a storm. When Jesus turned to his disciples 
after watching droves leave him on the shore in John 6, he turns to his disciples, his own 12, and he says, do you want to leave me too? He asked the 12. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? To where can we go? Your words have eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. The disciples trusted him completely. They were that good soil that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 13 in the parable of the sower. That it, it was cast out and three out of four were people who were just attracted to Jesus, but one in the four. It took root. It, it was good soil and it produced a fruit, a, pro, a product. It produced a plant some 30, 60, and 90 times over. Can I ask you, if you're enjoying God, you will not be able to contain the fruit that God will bear through your life by the power of his spirit. Is your life bearing fruit? He said that this little yeast, this poor doctrine has gone and it's ruined the whole batch. What he's talking about is it's ruining this thought that the Judaizers are giving is that you have to keep the law, you have to perform, you have to do these religious acts when Jesus has already done it all and you cannot perform what he did on the cross. He said, if you'll just allow that thought into your mind, it's going to ruin the truth of God in your life, and it's going to, that poor doctrine is going to rob your joy. How many of you have ever experienced God? Let me say this a different way. How many of you have ever had the joy of your salvation taken in a moment because circumstances got so big and you started to fall because of the waves? It was never intended for you. It's not what he wanted. He wants us to enjoy him. But today we have opportunity to enjoy him. Religious practice or law enslaves your life. That's what Paul's fighting for. Relationship and development in Jesus' grace empowers our lives. The Galatian believer was allowing the influence of the Judaizers to rob their joy. So what's the remedy? Here it is. We're going to wrap up here in a moment. What's the remedy? What do we do? We worship. Chief end of man was to worship, give him glory, and, and honor him or enjoy him. Tim Keller says it like this. If you are a Christian and you are dealing with the enslaving habits, it's not enough to say, bad Christian, stop it. He's talking about sin, but I'm going to insert something here. And it's not enough to beat yourself up and merely try harder and harder and harder. The secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin or legalism, religious practices, my insertion, is worship. He said you need worship, you need great worship, and this needs to be happening all the time, that we're to worship in all things, in every decision, in every location. We're to give thanks, we're to praise, we're to enjoy his goodness and seeking him even further for his smile over us. Because here's the thing that I believe Peter saw when he jumped over the side of the boat and he walked into the middle of that storm, tired, weary, and hurt. All Jesus did was give the invitation to come. And when, Jesus jump, when Peter jumps over the side and he looks and sees Jesus, how many of you think when he looked at Jesus, they saw that he saw Jesus frown? How many of you think that when Peter jumped over the side of the boat, walking on the water, that he looked at Jesus and he saw Jesus' disappointment? Or how many of us think that when he jumped over the side of the boat and came walking to water on the water, Jesus amazed his own disciples awed. He looked and they saw the smile of Jesus sustaining him. How many of you are grateful that Jesus already smiles on your life? He already smiles over you. He already smiles over me. John Avant says it like this. You worship your way into an addiction and you also must worship your way out of one. What he's talking about is the rhythms that we have created for ourselves. We all have well-worn paths that have led us to 
turn to the well of the flesh, to go back and trust ourselves, to trust our own works. But he says, if you want to start trusting the works of Jesus, really abiding, really, really attaching yourself and staying here with him in the midst of the storm, he says to do this. You need to play worship songs all the time. If it helps, you need to, like, if that helps you to get to the point where you can take Scripture memory and meditate on the truth of Jesus, then do it. You need to preach to yourself. You need to recite the truth of Jesus. You need to pray all the time. You need to seek God in the silence. In the solace, let your, your, your whole spirit still in his presence because though the waves around you may be seem insurmountable, how many of you have seen God do something in your life when you weren't sure you were going to make it through? Everything around you seemed insurmountable. It seemed too big. And then God came in in just the right time, precisely what you needed, and he lifted you up. Amen? You were able to do what was seemingly impossible to you. He made possible. He saved you when you needed. That's what happened the night that he came to his disciples on the, on the water. When they were at their weakest, God sustained them and inspired them by his strength. Church, this is where we are. This is what it means to stand firm in the grace of Jesus and not fall away from it. It's a position of the heart. It's a heart that wants to worship him. And so today, church, if you are one who says, I have not been experiencing the joy of my salvation, I encourage you to turn to Jesus today and realize he smiles over you. But for the rest of us in this room, I want to talk to the person who is the other side of that crowd Maybe not a child of God, someone who doesn't have a relationship with him yet. I'm going to ask the band to come back as we talk through this. You basically have three responses today. If you're here today and you go, I hear what you're saying, and I've heard this before. I've heard this quite a bit. And today, your response is kind of like just a closed door. Like you want nothing to do with what Jesus has to offer you today. He says, come, an invitation, but you go, I'm not interested. Here's what I want to tell you. I don't, I don't judge you for that. There's no problem. It's okay. It's cool. Now, here's what I will say. I think you're missing out, and I'm praying for you because you're missing out on freedom. You're missing out on joy. You're missing out on peace. You're missing out on purpose. You're missing out on everything that God intends for you, which is far better than the world. The problem with the Judaizer that he's talking about in this passage is they chose that the ways of the world were better than the ways of Jesus. And they would rather live in fear because of circumstance than placing their faith in the one who gives them the ability to stand in the middle of the waves. So if that's you and you say, I'm closed, that's okay. I just pray that you won't wait much longer, that soon you'll come to him because he'll reveal himself to you, that the Spirit would draw you and the Father would make Jesus something that you want so much that you can't wait to grab him. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here and you go, I'm like wide open. I don't want to wait another day. I want to give my life completely to Jesus. I see the waves and the circumstances too much and I need a savior. Hey, look, if that's you, if you're online or you're in this room, I want to talk to you. We're here available today. Just come. Whether email or I'm in the room today, if you want to come talk to me, I'd love to. That would be amazing. And if you are here and you're like, I'm kind of like, not a closed door. I'm not an open door. I'm kind of like a doorway that's like a half cracked. I'm kind of investigating. Those investigators, those who were like curious, they were still called attracted to Jesus, not attached to Jesus. They were still lost. 
So let me just encourage you, don't wait any longer. Don't dawdle. Throw that door wide open and come. If you want freedom, you want peace, you want purpose, you want to know what life actually looks like, both abundant and eternal, it's in him and him alone. You can never outperform the cross and what Jesus has already done for you, that you could have life in him. So here's the day. I want to ask you to stand. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to put... I'm going to put a verse or a set of verses on the screen. I want your eyes on them as I read them for us. I want us to see who it is we're actually responding to today. Psalm 103.8 says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has his removed our transgressions from us. This morning, how many of you, that's good news? Close your eyes. Father, Right now, I pray that you would lift up the name of Jesus, that you might draw a man into yourself. And Spirit, I pray that you'd stir in our hearts and minds that we would not deny you. And for those of us who need to be saved in this room today or just need to have the joy of our salvation restored today, I pray that we would know it's to Jesus that we respond. And I pray that we would let him have his way with us. So Father, we give you this hour. We thank you that whether it be in a storm in a drought or in the midst of the fire of persecution. Jesus, we thank you that you stand with us. It's in your name we ask.